Support Narrative's independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative and check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to subscribe and download. I have a, a good friend who um, is with a major company and in charge of a big part of uh, the private sector response, um, the company everybody would recognize, and called me distraught because uh, FEMA had just come in and seized all their supplies. So I was very curious about that chart that you put up, Zev, that mm. came from the article underneath Dr. Burks, and it didn't have Jared Kushner in there, but this is what was said um, was, you know, FEMA had called, seized everything and said, we have the algorithms to know mm-hmm. where things are going. Even though this company had the contracts with the hospitals themselves, uh, because that's how typically it's also done with companies that provide either PPE or testing or whatnot, they have contracts with hospital with the hospital chains that hospitals are also in big chains everybody they're big systems locally maybe i'm in the los angeles area so there were several hospitals here the va is also a client of of companies and so what had happened was that uh, fema had come in and it was during that time period where we also heard from jerry kushner uh that same sort of soundbite about um, it's our, these are our supplies, they're not for the states, they're for us. It was all happening in and around that same period. So I'm very, I'm very curious as to Jared Kushner's deep involvement in all of those areas, except for that first one that you call, that they called, their word, window dressing. But the three other, uh, other little pillars you had there of the, of the, what would be the national response, right? The government, the White House's response to the COVID um, outbreak in that one where it was Dr. Burt's determining, you know, what supplies go where. Um, Jared's name wasn't in there. I have a feeling he was. I don't know why they're hearing the word. These, these suppliers were hearing this term algorithms, mm-hmm. right? Coming from, the, coming from FEMA. Right, FEMA saying we have the algorithms. We know where it's going. Well, who's giving you those algorithms? Where are you getting these algorithms, <laughs> FEMA? Right? What what company are you talking about? What do you mean you're running the data on this? Who 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 wrote the algorithms? Can we see the algorithms? Right? These were this was a list of questions I was giving my friend back. I'm like, well, start asking him about these goddamn algorithms. I want to know where these algorithms are coming from that are determining who's getting PPE, who's getting a ventilator, who's getting tests. You know where this where the supplies are going. So, the answer is uh, Palantir, a lot of this. I mean, it seems to me that Palantir, you know, as much as <laughs> Teletracky collects it. So go ahead. I just want to finish this. Yeah. This is a big story. I mm. gave this I gave this source and this lead and this information um, to someone at the New York Times, again, New York Times, um, and they sat on it. And so if you're interested in it, I'm happy to hand all this to you. There was a lot of really shambolic stuff going on <laughs> around around that time where we were really in the first wave and in really deep trouble with it and the data was being messed with. Well, of course, please, please send it along. And, and Charles, your sense of who is doing the analysis, is, is, it, is that the way it works that 
um, you know, teletracking collects all this data or is supposed to collect all this data. They're inputting it into a platform that appears to be developed by Palantir and that Palantir is then analyzing that data. Yeah, um, there's no question that um, Palantir is deeply involved in the data analysis. They developed the platform itself. HHS Protect is the name mm -hmm. of it. And they are involved in organizing the data and a great deal of other federal data on COVID issues generally, not just the hospital data, but data all, all the way across the spectrum. Now, they're a very sophisticated company with regard to their data analysis, obviously quite controversial as well. Um, it, the problem I think that many of the public health experts say with this is, uh, if, just putting aside for a second the question about whether you trust Palantir fully because of the controversy that they've been involved in with their work for, for example, the uh, people at ICE, et cetera, in immigration matters. Uh, but the question of whether they have the correct subject matter experts, in other words, data is not just some kind of a, a, a neutral kind of uh, item that you can understand without having deep knowledge of hospitals and systems and what needs are and what can go wrong and how do you communicate with people who are at the receiving end of their federal instructions. All of those things and many others go into uh, making you an expert in how to analyze the data. It's not a matter of just throwing in so-called algorithms, but it's a matter of understanding how to develop an algorithm that understands the needs of the institutions that you're serving. In fact, one of the criticisms of Palantir is that it can't handle large data sets. It's quite good at analyzing some data sets, but when they're too big and too cumbersome, they don't really know. So add to that um, another layer that it's health, that it's not something they're familiar with. It, it certainly is not, not the best time to try out something new, even for a company like Palantir. Um, and Palantir, as you say, is a very controversial company. It's, of course, um, owned by, well, the CEO is uh, Alan Karp, this guy, but Famously, Peter Thiel is the main funder of it, it was, and one of the key founders. And this guy, Stephen Cohen, are the three founders. Now, they have a very unusual relationship as well. They're currently listing on the stock market. They're having their first IPO. And there is a way that they've listed it in a way that they, they can never be really removed from power or authority within this company. And if you know what Palantir does, is it basically collects data from various databases and cross-references to them and puts them out in a nice, easy way for people to to understand. So on top of the data that they've now collected from, um, you know, maybe intelligence organizations, because they're they are linked to InQtel, which is a company, a venture capital firm that is, is funded by the CIA. It's an arm of the CIA. They do a lot of work with the CIA. So let's assume they have a lot of CIA data available to them. They have FBI data, they have ICE data. And now on top of it, they're going to have all this health and human services data, all this coronavirus data. That's a lot of data to land in one place. And it's not just um, you know, it's not just privacy concerns, because there are definitely privacy concerns, but we never expected our health data to be intermingled with all this other stuff that they, that these guys are collecting. And yet here it is. Charles, I hope you would comment on that, but maybe you don't want to. Uh, <laughs> I got one. I'm not really an expert on Palantir's okay. uh, whole realm, and I, I don't really care to okay. get into that. All right, Eric, go uh, ahead. 
I, I got one. This is a group of people who don't give a shit about the law. So what do they care? They they have another mission here, and it ain't in the public interest. They they're loud and proud. It's in the private interest, and uh, you know I, what they've done here with a pandemic that's going to create uh, that's already created a pile of bodies that's about to get a lot deeper. Uh, it seems like uh, this may go from civil lawsuits into uh, criminal conspiracy quite quick from where I'm sitting. So. They're about to be listed at $20 billion. You know, this is a company that in 2012 was worth $2 billion at best. Um, it's a lot of growth for a company. And they're, they're one of the biggest, uh, you know, uh, unicorns on, on the block. They certainly are 20 times unicorn now. Um, so they definitely have um, traction and they have a lot of clients. And most of those clients are in government. And so you say that they're, you know, have their just interests that are different from the public, yet their main clients are the government. Well, that's definitely who they they want to sell to. And anytime it, it, Palantir's been that's trying the big to get money. That's the money. Yeah, it's huge, huge money. And and all the data one could want mm. <laughs> what to do with it, I don't know what. Um, but you're you're not going to get a reach into data. Uh, <laughs> privately like you're going to get if you're working with governments. I think it's a plural there. Mm. Um, yeah. I also think it's, you know, it, it's hard because Zev and I talked before the show of like, you know, it's always trying to talk about things like this and walk this fine line of, um, you know, if, if we have intelligence agency involvement, um, especially our own, and there's no, honestly, guys, there's no question about this. Really, no one's trying to hide. No one's trying to hide anything here because uh, it, it's very possible nothing's going on that's wrong, right? Um, we <laughs> so um, you know, you know, you have to really be careful in talking about these things because we don't really know where it's going. We only can sort of raise flags up about um, where we see big problems ahead, big, you know, big concerns, big issues, and what do we do about it? I personally, um, with a company like Palantir who has, with a platform that can do what it's doing and with the kind of contracts that it's garnering and the kind of money and the players behind it, um, I do want our uh, our own good guys sort of in there looking at, okay, what are you guys doing now? I mean, I, I don't have a problem with that. It, to a certain degree, and I don't want to. I think we have to be careful vilifying um, any of these entities uh, around intention when we're just not we're just not clear. Peter Peter Thiel to me is is someone I can't put in the bucket of a sort of a villainous character. But is everything this guy touches end up being a problem? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, one of the challenges with him is that he's not only a supporter of Donald Trump, as you see there, but he carries around a, a picture of his really good friend, Eric Prince, in his in his wallet, um, which oh. he revealed to a journalist a couple of years ago from the New York Times. I mean, yeah. What is that about? That's weird. It's weird. There's no doubt about it. It is weird that these two have so much in common with each other and uh, seem to be, you know, somehow working together. I mean, Eric Prince obviously is involved in the mercenary field, is involved in the defense sector, and so does Palantir. So, the, you know, the simplest um, explanation is that. But, you know, why would he be having a 
picture of him in his wallet. I don't know. What is what is in wallet? I think it was on his cell phone. Sorry, I should say in his cell phone. But it was it was an unusual um, thing that he it pointed out on purpose to uh, to a journalist. So it does strike you as sort of a interesting yeah. thing. And, you know, his relationship with Donald Trump is interesting. He's also spoken at white nationalist events, or at least attended them. Uh, That's those, right. Those things all raise lots of questions. They raise lots of questions about... Mark Zuckerberg's big buddy, yeah. That's the other it, thing. He funded oh, yeah. Facebook. I almost so, forgot. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, you're talking about a, comp- a person that's... He's potentially compromised. So, with Chuck Johnson doing deals still with right. Chuck Johnson. And yeah, so, uh, it's a it's a problem. It's it's an issue. And then here he is. He's going to have all this data and control of this company that can never be taken away. But but to bring this to the practical, all right, we had a government system, and it's it's pointed out in your article, Mr. Pillar, that you know before it's got this the the CDC system was was criticized, it was underfunded for years, um, but yet it, you know, losing of, you know, three to five, 6% of data, clearly, you know, it's not Six Sigma, you want a 0.00 whatever, but that's not necessarily realistic, where you actually might, might have a data entry problem, where the charge nurse didn't load in that second bed that left or forgot to file or, or whatever. When you're talking about 37,000 hospitals, you know, it gets into the, it gets into human error, but in the middle of the most deadly mortal event in a century in this country, just as people were starting to pay less attention to it because the, the numbers of infections were drip, dipping down as we entered the summer, we, you know, we get a Kremlin employee doing all the uh, the communications over at HSS, and we we switch to this private vendor. And at the end of the day, we get what is, in scientific statistical terms, a, a, a tectonic increase in failure. And moreover, now we're going into the winter season. We are going to dark, dark days. I mean, right now in Belgium, they're overwhelmed mm. in the city of Liege. And one one third of people are testing positive for COVID. Twenty five percent of hospital workers are COVID uh, positive, and they're having them work even though there's a risk of spreading the disease further. Because if they don't, if they're as long as they're asymptomatic, if they don't, the hospital system will collapse, and even more people will die. We, if you know, we have all this sophistication and all this data. Well, you're right. We can't speculate about exactly what the dude who hangs out with white nationalists um, and the uh, the platform that was just used by Russian intelligence. Well, who knows? He could be a great guy. But at the end of the day, we went from a system that we had that would have informed governors, mayors, hospital CEOs of what do you need to do? And this is really critical tactical stuff because if if there is an out if you have ventilators that you don't need you know remember mike uh, pompeo sent a bunch of our stockpile over to china mm-hmm. just as the thing started to hit us oh, so yeah. with the ones we have left since the ventilators that we were going to have produced they kept kicking the contract forward and all that so you know we've had a little trouble with the defense production act here we need to if st louis is not sick new york is sick we need to know who's sick so we can send them the stuff so no one will die here and then we'll we'll control suffering there but when you're talking about going from three to four percent data missing to half your goddamn data missing you're talking about a stack of dead bodies so this seems to be quite a scandal 
Yeah, it's it's a very very scary and difficult situation, and I think it's um, you know, look, I'm not I'm, I can't see inside people's minds. I don't know what their intentions were. I take it on faith that someone like uh, Dr. Burks, who many people in public health and many people in CDC view as misguided in her approach, and even worse than misguided. Uh, but but on the other hand, you know, I'm quite sure that she is not in favor of the pandemic overwhelming the country. She wants to do something useful. Um, some of these actions are misguided. Some are outright foolish, according to many of the public health experts that I've spoken to. But I think what the issue is, is a cascade of decisions, sorry, some sorry of that. which, sorry. some of these decisions were directly motivated by the political needs of the Trump administration. And some were just perhaps uh, tactical decisions that didn't work out well. And this combination of things leads to a profound distrust, not just of the administration's response to COVID, but of the bedrock governmental institutions that have to be in, in good stead with the American public to protect us and to protect our communities, namely the CDC and the FDA. Mm -hmm. If their credibility is undermined, by by people with maybe misguided ideas and good intentions, or maybe uh, people who are being manipulated for political reasons or some combination of those things. It's still very bad for us. And it's mm -hmm. important to support those institutions' ability to That's be authoritative right. and to do the right thing. Right. That's right. And I feel like, I do feel like, look, uh, we're all hoping <laughs> that we can get some stability after this election right um but you know i am i am hopeful that uh with putting sort of the right people in charge and getting things back on track that the institutions also can right themselves fairly quickly especially around something like a pandemic with where you're dealing with the cdc and the hhs that they can that and i think in terms of if the response can actually be fixed to be what we know we're capable of and what we have been capable of the of in the past um then then the faith in the institutions comes back because the ship is riding itself right and so that's it, it, one follows the other i do i do believe that we have that ahead of us if we can get if we can get the right people in there um to know what they're to know what they're doing and so i'm not so worried about that but i did want to ask you Charles, what do you see, having looked at this so carefully, what would make a difference for those people? Hopefully we can get a turnover. Hopefully we can get people coming back in that know what they're doing and that have a clarity over what actually needs to be done. What could be done with the data itself? Like maybe the top three things that you could see of like, if we just did X, Y, and Z um, with this data, we'd be on a on a much better path. It would be working for us. Do you have anything like that to share that's helpful? Sure. Um, so um, the practical use of these data is in part to allocate resources, to allocate federal resources where they're most needed. And the second thing, I think I mentioned this earlier, is that what you always want to do is anticipate problems, anticipate the severity of problems so that you can have resources in place to handle them when they occur. And I think if the data are being used in their best, highest way, it would be valuable to be able to put the modelers 
who have this decades of experience back in place, analyzing the data and projecting out where the needs are going to arise with the greatest severity and to be able to put federal resources and local resources to use where they're needed. That will save lives. That will prevent hospitals from being overwhelmed in the long run. And so to me, that's the practical issue. As for your comments about the future, um, first of all, I applaud your optimism about the recovery of these agencies. I really sincerely hope that you're right about that. Mm -hmm. I think um, what people inside CDC are telling me is that the agency will be hollowed out if uh, Trump remains in power for another four years. Right. They're looking right. for the exits. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's a, a question. Look, I'm not taking a position on, on that, the validity of that comment, except that people I trust within CDC are very concerned about it. They see their colleagues looking around for other jobs, worried about the future of their agency. These are people who love the CDC, who have spent their careers there, but don't feel that they can do their best work there anymore and need to feel like they're making a contribution. So I would just say that your optimism, which again, I applaud, is um, I think it has a good chance of uh, coming to, into fact um, depending on the outcome of the election, according to the CDC people with whom right. I talk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's very It really is all on the line. It really, it really is. It really is one of those elections mm -hmm. um, that, that every single institutional expert continues to t say to us about, whether it's intelligence agencies folks, CDC folks, right, it, uh, EPA, right? They're all saying, if he gets in again, it, you're looking at the destruction of this institution. Um, it, 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 and that has everything to do with the functioning of our democracy. It really does. You can't separate that. You can't separate a, a really healthy CDC, HHS, right, uh, with a healthy democracy. You can't, you can't they, it doesn't, they, they go hand in hand. They Especially go hand when you in think hand. We are our institutions. We are our institutions. We are. When you think about them using the army, and that's the Trump's plan, is to use the army to distribute vaccines. Oh, now, how are they going to do that? that, 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 that he's got that guy that he likes, right? I can't remember his name right now. He's just good at operations. Well, I think it's Esper that's guy. involved in that, but it's, it's, so, it's still, you know, it's a, you, you can't just force people to take um, vaccines. You can't just show up on their, in their neighborhoods and say, you've got to be vaccinated. This is not how America works. It doesn't, you know, they say they have a plan. They have not been very transparent about it. As you point out, the people at the CDC and those other uh, fine institutions are going to start looking elsewhere for work. And we haven't even hit the worst part of the pandemic yet. I think that's still ahead of us. And so, you know, the way people vote in the next week is critical, but also, the earlier point you made, I thought was really interesting. There is something that people can do. They can, you know, call their senators and call their congresspeople and ask that the old CDC be reinstituted. Now, it's, you know, it may not work. It likely won't work. But at least it's worth having your voices out there um, and making sure that this story gets heard by more and more people. Because I fear it is getting drowned out by, um, by what seems to be, you know, other, other big news or other distractions in the news. News cycle being what it is, it's very, very hard to keep people's attention on anything for more than a short while. But this is a, not an issue that's going away because the consequences of it are, are high and it will, it will come back to us if it's not fixed. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, they, they're, they're, the consequences are basically assured. That is why the health officials uh, in places like St. Louis, where people have been overly lax, as if God owes them a favor, and the the math, the R, the particles of RNA, are not going to act like uh, they normally do here. Um, they're starting to break down in tears because the the mathematics and the biology do not care, and a lot of this is assured. And you know, people remember a little bit of you know refrigerator trucks of dead people in um, in New York City, right? Um, and the, you know, this is, if you've been following Dr. Dina Grayson's work, you know this was going to have yeah. a certain bump in, in in the first winter. It was going to have a lull as coronaviruses do until about now when people start congregating inside and they start heading in for the drier air of uh, heating systems inside and there's an explosion especially if people have gotten used to congregating not wearing masks all that and that is what our leadership has done at the same time that they have hobbled intentionally one of our market one of the the most respected institutions and um you know i'm a dc denizen and CDC and NIH are globally respected institutions, the best in the world. And in NIH particularly, I had friends that worked there and I've worked with them. And, you know, you have people come from, you know, if you have a disease that two people get out of 7 billion, it goes to NIH, you know, um, and the, the, you know, the amazing cutting edge research and thinking about protecting the health of the world. Yeah, there's the World Health Organization, but there's so many of those the, the, the sharpest minds in the world working together promoting science and they have been beset by these mobsters and grifters and criminals pushing these political uh, appointees down on them and you cross-reference that with the the new executive order they're trying to push that would allow them to clean out tens of thousands of people from or if they don't like Trump that's what's coming up next and you know all the love and respect to your your, your uh, contacts over there, Mr. Peller, and uh, give them our support because That's they are right. essential to this this nation, and they never get thanks because they work quietly and incredibly diligently, and we we owe them our protection right. and our appreciation. Well, I'm sure they appreciate that. Thank you. I have one more question for you, Dr. Peller, and then you know you you probably want to head off. But I, I the one question I have is around Dr. Burks. Do you think? Americans should have confidence in her ability to manage this, or is, or is what's the perception around her, at least from within the CDC that you're hearing? Uh, I think the the perception within the CDC that is extremely common and widely shared, including among top leadership within the CDC, is that uh, Dr. Burks, for reasons that people aren't really completely sure about, is one of the key forces for undermining and perhaps even destroying the agency's ability to function effectively as the key force in combating COVID-19. So what her motivations are, what her goals are, hard, to, hard for me to discern, but I'm saying that within the agency, she's considered to be someone who is actively destroying their, their opportunities to work on our behalf. Well, that's alarming. Um... Wow. Um, Rao Burks. Rao and it's, Burks. And it's, okay. she's got a history of this, right? She's got a history of this. This is oh. not her first, uh, you know, first full range controversy. She was involved in the AIDS fights and the PEPFAR. Oh, did you freeze up? No, you're still there. I froze up. 
top had a really funny face. Sorry, everybody. Uh, but can you tell, me away. I can, did. That statement blew me away. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about PEPFAR and her experience there at, at PEPFAR? Because I think that's really interesting. Sure. Um, so uh, PEPFAR is a very um, important and overall quite successful program, foreign aid program of the United States to combat AIDS in the developing world. And uh, Dr. Brooks has been head of PEPFAR since 2014. She's still head of PEPFAR, but right now she's sort of, you might say, on leave to run the COVID response. And uh, the, what, what I found in my reporting for this article is that many of the concerns raised by people at the CDC about how she operates and how she um, controls the realms that she's responsible for reflected similar kinds of approaches at PEPFAR. Uh, the words used were dictatorial, authoritarian. Um, uh, and the problem is that, um, so look, you know, tough managers are tough managers. They often get things done. I'm not suggesting that uh, tough management is a bad thing necessarily. Um, I think the issues that were raised at PEPFAR are similar to the issues that have been raised at CDC, which is to say that uh, Burks uh, used financial imperatives for programs to report certain kinds of data that she required, data that was often considered unreasonable and extreme and perhaps even beyond what was uh, uh, useful and effective in guiding policy judgments. Uh, but an obsession with with this sort of uh, detailed data. And the the threat of losing your money for not providing certain kinds of data is an, is an invitation. And I'm not, again, I'm not making up these words. These were stated by PEPFAR employees on the ground in the developing world. It's an invitation to cooking the books. In other words, oh. if you're going to lose your money, if you don't supply oh, data, you're going to supply data. <laughs> whether it's true or not. And, and this is now being applied, this method is now being applied within the collection of hospital data throughout the country. Mm. So they've already been warned a couple of weeks ago, they were warned by the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare uh, and by Dr. Burks, who was instrumental in creating this policy, that either they submit the data or their money, their Medicare and Medicaid money is going to be removed. So hospitals depend on that money. They can't function without it for the most part. And so um, it raises the question not, you know, look, these hospitals are made up of dedicated Oops, oh. froze up there for a second. One second, you should show up. Just you froze dedicated. up. Dedicated. Hospitals are made up of dedicated. Uh, no. It looks like he's coming back. Oh. He creates the we missed you. Oh, we oh, lost you there for a, for oh. a few seconds. Oh, um, you said I'm sorry. hospitals are made up of dedicated, okay. and then we lost you. We lost you on dedicated. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to say that um, that these individuals are not people who are prone to phonying up their data. But when you're in an, have, facing an existential threat, namely, you don't have money to run your hospital unless you submit data, you're going to submit data. And people at the CDC who are, have decades of experience with these sorts of issues and have seen these kinds of problems in other realms uh, are warning that uh, these financial imperatives will create circumstances where some hospitals under threat might create false data to make sure that they get their Medicare money. That's just an additional problem in the way that the data collection is being structured now. 
Support Narrative's independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative and check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to subscribe and download. Mm-hmm.